the perfect project for me to do as I approach my 50th birthday all the way right through to my 60th birthday which was in uh, 2018 happened to coincide with the the 100 years of women getting the vote so it was um, an absolute fantastic project to be on it, it was a labor of love sometimes very challenging sometimes you know unexpected but always exciting and I always felt that real buzz when I went off with the uh, bootload of, of photographic equipment out into the you know the middle of nowhere or into the center of London to the old Kent Road the fire station for instance <laughs> you know I've got to be in places that I'd never ever been in before in my life and and that's one of the things that's really fabulous about being a photographer you are always meeting new people and and finding yourself in new places next slide please so here we are I am um, I photographed uh, Rebecca Stevens who's the first woman to reach the summit of Mount Everest from the UK and um, not well she, she's from the UK and uh, I, I wanted to photograph her in a place that um, that looked obviously I couldn't go to Everest sadly we didn't have the budget for that but I wanted to photograph her in a place um, Rebecca in a place that was uh, high up and gave that sense of a feeling of sort of looking ahead looking out looking out to you know the top of the world she she went to the top of the world how do you recreate that in a picture in you know in the south downs so it's um it is one of those things that as a skill as a photographer that you have to be very uh creative and um kind of put little clues into the picture so in in the picture in this picture of a portrait of rebecca um you may notice that there's a a little symbol, a little a branding on the side of her, her jumper, which um, is actually says mountain something, or it's a picture of a mountain. So there are ways and means that you can kind of reenact a, a first without having to go to, to Everest. I think the nearest I got was on the Annapurna Trail when I was on my gap year, and that was hard enough. I can't imagine how, how uh, physical it must have been to get to the top. And next slide, please. So we have um, Re Rebecca Stevens is, is um, paired with Louise Goodman. So it's um, mountains to motors. So whatever turns you on, mountains or motors, we have something for you. And Louise Goodman is photographed in the Silverstone. Um, I think they call it a garage, but it's more like an operating theatre. I, I was uh, convinced that it was going to be, you know, lots of oily rags and and people with, with oil all over their hands and you know quite a messy place and uh, how, how wrong could I be when I got there and, and I was you know lucky enough to be allowed to photograph Louise in in the um, Silverstone uh, garages uh, it was absolutely spotless uh, I was shocked I really thought that this doesn't look like a place where motors go but of course it's um, absolute perfection and the highest quality of, of, of motors and engines and technicians and engineers and mechanics there. And um, I was really impressed with uh, how, how stylish it was actually. Um, and this is the, um, the kit, the uniform that Louise had to wear, which I believe is fireproof because she was um, in charge of that wheel, that back, the back, what is it? Near side, the back near side wheel, I guess. I'm probably wrong there but uh, yeah so again I'd never ever have a chance to go into the Silverstone 
garage. Why would I be? Why would they let me in there? And it's top secret and probably highly secure. Um, but I got to go in there and spend half a day with with Louise, and it, it was was wonderful. It was a great experience. Um, so I have yet to go back to Silverstone one day. And just the last slide is just to say that we are, uh, as you know, probably I gave you the hot off the press news on the the link. We are reopening in Exeter. The exhibition will reopen from the 18th of May to the uh, end of September. So that is, is a really good long run. So hopefully a lot of you will be able to come down and enjoy the freedom that we now are starting to feel. Um, it's a free, op free open exhibition that's free. You can come as many times as you like. I don't know if there'll be, a, there may be a booking system, but the great news is subject to obviously any other lockdown situations, we will be reopening in a couple in three weeks, four weeks time. So that has made my day. So that, that's, uh, that's the end of the slideshow. So I'd just like to say, let you know a little bit about what's happening for the next um, 45 minutes. Um, we will, uh, Louise and Rebecca will, will come onto the screen and they will introduce themselves. Then I'll, ask them, I'll start off by asking some questions, but we really do want you to ask the questions as well. So we're ready and waiting for your questions on the chat box. And um, yeah, so that's how the, the evening goes. So I'll ask a few to just warm them up and get going. And then we'll await your wonderful, uh, intelligent questions. And I'm sure we'll hear some wonderful, intelligent answers as well. So if I would could get um, Rebecca and Louise to, to reveal themselves on the screen. And if Rebecca, if you could start off by telling us a little bit about your, your life and times and your first, that would be fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Anita, for making all this happen, first of all, and, uh, and for being here. And thank you, all of you ladies, and I think a couple of gentlemen as well, for joining us tonight. Um, what I love about this is that, well, I was going to say it's very spontaneous, but there's no preparation, <laughs> which is great. And I'm inviting you to ask questions which make us have to think on the spot, which uh, is, is always, always nice. Um, what can I say about myself? I, I started my working life in journalism. Um, and today I still find myself writing. Um, this year has been quite a strange one for me because uh, in the normal world, I would be leading tracks, um, maybe in the Himalayas or in Africa, clearly that isn't happening. Um, I also lecture, that isn't happening. And I also run workshops and hey, what, that isn't happening. Um, but um, I have been keeping myself incredibly busy actually. And uh, I have written a book myself and I've been doing some online work and, um, and quite a lot of writing. So um, having to adapt like many of us. But the reason I'm here tonight is because um, in the list of firsts that Anita brought together, um, I was the first British woman, and I do qualify that, um, to climb Everest. I qualify it because I do recall when the news reporters got their hands on it afterwards, they conveniently deleted the word British and suddenly I was elevated to the first woman in the world and had to go around apologising to everybody that that wasn't quite true and that um, actually the first woman in the world was Japanese, her name was Junko Dubai. Um, but here I am um, in this UK group which is, is very nice and um, from that I went on to climb the seven summits, the highest mountain on each of the, uh, the world's continents and that too um, was the first actually for a, a British woman. 
Um, so hopefully there'll be something there for you to ask some questions about and for us to have a conversation. Thank you, that's great. Um, Louise, could you reveal yourself? I'm revealed, here I am. Oh, you're there you are, <laughs> lovely. And let us know a little bit about your life and times and first. Well, thank you for me as well, Anita, for, um, for, for putting this all together. I've, I've been able to dial into to some of the, uh, the, these chats and I've, I have to say thoroughly enjoyed hearing from, um, from other women um, you know, about, about their stories. Um, my story, I am, uh, like Rebecca, um, journalism is, is my background. So um, sports reporting and specifically motorsport reporting, which I started, I started working in Formula One back in the late 1980s, which was, um, I was quite, a, quite an oddity then. There weren't that many women around in, in the Formula One paddock. I mean, the, the paddocks were smaller then altogether, a lot less people, but certainly not, not many women at all. So we were a bit, of a, a bit of a rarity. I started out initially in Formula One um, working in PR, um, but then switched. I was approached by ITV uh, when they were taking over the, the contract to, to broadcast Formula One. Um, and they approached me and said, would I, would I like to be a, a reporter for them? And it was as a result of being a reporter for ITV that my first came about. So um, we, as, as part of the show, specifically at Silverstone, uh, we decided we'd do a feature um, whereby I would be taking part in the, the pit stop. So people who, who watch motorsport and Formula One will be familiar. That's the bit when the car, car careers into the pit lane all four tires get changed at, at rapid speed. Uh, when I did mine, um, the cars were refueled as well, which means it, it takes a, li a little bit longer because now they're, they're doing, you know, 12, 12 people around the car changing all four tires in, in less than two seconds. So it, it really is quite something. Um, back, as I say, when, when I did mine, there were um, refueling stops as well, which I, I think I wouldn't have been allowed to do it if they were aiming for the sub two second because that would have been, been quite something. So, and I had to go through quite an intensive training process with the team. Obviously, you know, you, you've been given a responsibility that could end up having dramatic results for, for, for the team in question if it, if it all goes wrong. And in fact, the first team that I trained with um, their, their sporting director suddenly had a change of heart. I'd been training with them for months doing their, their pick stop practice, which is something that the teams will do regularly at a Grand Prix. And then um, a week before the British race where we were going to be filming it, they, they had a change of heart and said I couldn't do it. So I actually went to the team where you came to see me at Silverstone, Anita, which was the team that I'd worked at as a press officer. So when I uh, approached them, they were very receptive, said, yep, absolutely fine. Come along and do it. You'll have to come and do the practices with us. Um, so um, the team was called Spiker at the time. It is what's now morphed into being the Aston Martin Formula One team. So, and, and despite the fact I trained for it, you know, standing with a bunch of people with a, with a car approaching you at 80 miles an hour um, and knowing that, you know, you've got to get everything right. My job was rear left wheel off is the uh, official description of it. So you'll have three people working on, on each corner of the car. One person with the gun who puts the gun on. Um, my job was then to pick up the wheel and take it off. And you've got a third person who puts the new wheel on, gunman puts it back on again. So, uh, and even though I'd kind of trained for it and, and sort of thought I know what I'm doing, I, it was such a nerve wracking experience. I wasn't expecting the adrenaline to to be as high as it was. So it was all over and done with in, in seven or eight seconds. Um, but the feeling of, of A, relief and B, joy was, was enormous <laughs> afterwards. I, I'd got it all right. I hadn't done anything wrong. And in fact, it wasn't until 
afterwards that it was pointed out to me that I was the first woman who'd actually ever done that job during a during a Grand Prix. So um, it was a first that I wasn't setting out to achieve, that, but sort of came about, um, you know, just as a, well, I didn't set out to achieve it. It, it, it was just an honour that that sort of came my way as, as a result of what I'd done. But um, definitely something that will, uh, a memory that will stay with me for a long time, that's for sure. And what happened? Did they win, your team? No, they didn't win. They didn't win. Um, but, uh, but coincidentally, actually, the team I'd originally been planning to do with it, both of their cars had technical problems before they came to do their pit stop. So had, had I stuck with that team, my, my pit stop would never have happened. So uh, it's so been a first. Oh, wonderful. Well, they were very friendly, that garage, when I came in. I was very impressed with how open and helpful they were. Uh, moving the car around, you know. Yeah. Guys. I mean, it's, it's actually, um, it, it, that's the factory where the cars are actually built and constructed as well as they have all the work done on them. So it's, uh, as you saw yourself, Anita, very, very technical places. Obviously, Formula One is a very technological sport. So um, everything I couldn't is, believe uh, how, how light and small they were, actually. Yeah, yeah. Unless yeah. you've been to see a race when obviously they're going so fast, you don't really get to see this size, do you? But yeah. No, like they, they're made up of amazing sort of, you know, technological materials. The, the, the outer body of it is all carbon fiber, which is used because it's an incredibly light material. So the lighter you are, the faster you're going to go. Yes, yes. Fantastic. So we have one question already from the audience. So um, let's go back to Rebecca for this one, I think. Caroline Collingridge, are you happy to, you're, you would like to ask this one? Yes. Yes. Right. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. I can hear you. Yes. Um, yes. Um, I mean, oh, what, what an achievement. Um, so my question is, what motivated you to climb Mount Everest? And how did you find it psychologically? I've heard that many people um, want to so-called conquer the mountain. But if I was younger, I'd prefer to climb it to be at one with it. Yes. And I really appreciate your thoughts about your climb and the motivations of others around you as you climb. Yes. Well, there's quite a lot to, to answer there. But thank you for that question. I, I agree with you, first of all. I think uh, to conquer is a word that many climbers feel very uncomfortable with because... Of course, there's not a battle. Um, nobody wins and loses. The mountain just is. And, you know, if the weather allows, we can climb to the top of it and hopefully safely back down again. So conquer is never, ever, ever a word that I would use um, in, in climbing. Um, but you asked me about the motivation and I was just thinking, Louise, how, how odd is that? Because um, it, for Louise and for myself, it was actually journalism that threw up this opportunity. So... For me, I'll try and keep the story uh, brief, but it came from curiosity. And I suppose maybe that's something around journalism. You're always asking questions and meeting new people and finding out new things. But I was working in London back in the 1980s. I read a, a little snippet of an article in the Times newspaper about some climbers going to K2, the second highest mountain in the world. And they were giving a lecture in London. I went to this lecture and discovered that really they wanted hunters to come to the base camp with them to help finance their expedition. And I didn't have any money and I said to them, listen, could I come and write about it? And they said, yes, of course. Well, that was the little tiny seed that was sown. I never got a commission for that and I never went to K2. But a couple of years later, 
one of the climbers, his name's Roger Mia, and I was on the phone to him just the other day. Um, he rang me and I was in the office and he said, we've got this expedition going to Everest. We need a report, would you like to come? And it took me a nanosecond to know what the answer to that question was. And this time I was really fortunate because I think I failed with K2 because it's not such a big concept in the minds of the British public, whereas Everest, everybody knows Everest. And I was able to get a commission um, from the weekend newspaper. I was working for one of the FT magazines and the weekend FT sponsored me basically um, to go to Everest to report on this expedition. This was back in 1989. And um, it, 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 I mean, it's, in so many ways, it seems like yesterday, but if we're talking about technology, it was, it was like, two centuries ago because you know we had no satellite we had no electricity we just had the first amstrad i don't know if any of you remember that word processor but that was no good because i couldn't plug it in so i had to go out and buy an old typewriter and traveled to Kathmandu. i'd never been to asia jumped on a truck drove up over the french rip bridge you know through across the tibetan plateau to the north side of everest with these americans and british it was an anglo-american expedition and they were attempting to climb the Northeast Ridge, which at that point had, hadn't been climbed. And I was there just to write about it. But I had 10 weeks, which is a long while. And I was surrounded by these people who were, you know, so extraordinarily obsessed by this mountain. I thought, okay, what's it all about, you know? And the only way that I was going to find out was to climb. So I made a little pact with myself to climb um, beyond the advanced base camp, up to the first camp on the Northeast Ridge. And that, when I think about it, you know, there's so many crossroads that might have happened or might not have happened. That wouldn't have happened, but for one Sherpa called Chuang, because actually the Americans and the British really didn't want me to do this because they thought I would mess things up, you know, <laughs> I'd fall off or get hypothermia or pulmonary edema or something. And there was this local guy who said, are you serious? I said, yes, I'm serious. And he handed me the kit that I needed. And much more important, actually, he gave me that little boost of confidence that I could do it. And... So I put on the crampons and held the ice axe and such like, and climbed up this feature that was called Bill's Buttress um, at the end of the Northeast Ridge with a guy who was, who was there on the fixed ropes with me. And, you know, we're, I was climbing, it was just over 7,000 meters. I don't know, you know, that, that, that's, the air is thin at that altitude. So that was the issue was it was hard work, but I got to this little camp on the, on the top of the ridge. And the camp is a rather grand term. It was one tent up there. And I sat in this little tent after climbing eight or nine hours. And I could see, I mean, I'm sure there are many people here who love to climb and, and, and walk and things. And getting to that point of the ridge where you get the view the other side, I could see this whole new valley. I could look down on the North Coal. I could look long over beyond the pinnacles and up to the summit of Everest. It was just such a rare, extraordinary, beautiful place to be. And, and I felt alive. I know people say this, but you feel, you feel so alive because your senses are so sharpened. Because, you know, one little error and it has very serious consequences. So you are sharp, you know, and I just felt, I just felt fabulous. I knew, I knew this was for me. And it was that day, that was the conversion for me. And uh, I, I never looked back. <laughs> That's what I wanted to do. Was that, and was that the first time you'd climbed at all? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, but I didn't, I didn't climb to the summit that time. And no. You know, that, so I climbed up to the first camp that time, came home, back to my job, and then it was another four years before I got back to the mountain.
And when you when you went up onto the summit, were you the only woman in that party in the in the climbing party? I, I was the only woman in the party, and actually, um, I have spoken about this in some ways. But in, in some ways, the sort of um, the development of women in climbing has very very strong parallels with women generally in the workplace. So there were. I'll tell you this story, I don't want to, it's really interesting because I interviewed John Hunt, um, who led the first expedition, um, successful expedition that put Hillary and Tenzing on the summit back in 1953. Wow. And he was a beautiful man, but um, at the end of the interview, I sort of picked up courage and said, you know, would you have invited a woman on that expedition in 1953? And without hesitation, he said, inconceivable, <laughs> you know, no way. And, uh, and then he sort of realized, okay, you know, he sort of backpedaled a bit. And he said, listen, there were no women climbing in those post-war years. There were few enough men to choose from. And I took that at face value. Um, but when I came back from Everest, I did get letters and I got some from women who had been climbing in the 1950s. But, um, you, know, I, you know, I don't want to put this point too hard, but they weren't part of the club. No. I mean, literally, they weren't part of the club. They couldn't join the Alpine Club until 1975. Wow. Um, and so they weren't on people's radar, but they were doing great stuff. Yeah. Well, it is it is amazing, isn't it? The, the times yeah. we're only talking like what 40, 40 years ago? No, not even forty. Well, years. we climbed it forty years after that first ascent. I climbed in nineteen ninety three. So ninety three, yeah. Yeah. So we have a question from. Uh, we have two questions. One from uh, from two first women, actually. Um, so Danny Cotton would like to ask Louise uh, Goodman a question. Danny, would you like to pop up? Yeah, I am. So. Uh, Hi folks, lovely to be with everyone again. I just love these evenings and Anita and Debbie or Stars for organising them. Louise, um, um, as a fellow petrol head, uh, very excited by everything you do and uh, just curious to know, did your pit stop experience ever make you consider a career change or wish you'd had the opportunity earlier to be more hands-on? And how were you received by the other, obviously all male um, pit stop crews in what you did? Um, thanks, Danny. Nice, nice question, and nice to uh, nice to have another fellow petrol head on the uh, on the call. Um, no, I don't think it did. I, I think in order to um, to work on the technical side of the sport, you've got to have a an interest um, in the technical side of things and and be a knowledge of it. Um, so, and those were things that were never never my bat really. I was always an arts girl, you know. In English love the written language so so no that that never really never really appealed to me um, it's it's nice actually to see there are now more and more women um, who are working on that side of the sport so um, the technical side of the sport has got much larger but predominantly since there's been so much more electronic so I think the first women working actually on the engineering side of the sport were tended to be data engineers you still don't see that many mechanics and it's the mechanics who you see doing the hands-on job largely in, in that pit stop. Um, so not, not enough female mechanics around still, none that I can think of in Formula One. Um, I also work in a championship called British Touring Car Championship, which is, which is a national series. And there are a few female uh, mechanics working in that. Um, but um, but uh, no, it, it never really appealed to me. How did it go down with the guys? Well, because it was the team that I'd worked at previously, 
I, I, they were very, I mean, some of the people had changed, but a lot of them were still the same. So it was, I kind of, I was with my, with my gang, as it were. So they were all very to happy. I say they're all very happy to have me on board. In fact, it was the, the team sporting director who would, one of the first people to, to join the team and was there in the very early days when I was there, who started off as a mechanic and had risen up through the ranks. He was the one I approached when the other team that I mentioned pulled out. And Andy said, yeah, no, no problem, you'll, you'll be absolutely fine. I found out just before the race that he hadn't actually told the engineers, so that the, the top level technical people, he hadn't mentioned it to them. I said, didn't you tell them? He said, no, because they honestly, they just make so much of a fuss about it. I mean, really, everybody, you know, every guy on the crew has done it for the first time at some point. So you're trained. I know you can do it. They would just make too much of a fuss. There was no point. So um, so other than the top level engineers, who, as I say, had a bit of a bit of a heart attack when they were told 10 minutes before the race. Oh, by the way, we've got Louise Goodman on the crew. No, all the other guys I was actually working with were I think they they enjoyed you know being part of the process. They they knew that you know ITV was doing a feature about it. So that's how it came about as, as part of the Formula One um, programs. We would all put together different features that would run sort of a, ahead of the race each time. Um, so you're always trying to come up with different ideas for what will be interesting for, for people to see. And actually, we thought to be on the inside of a crew, to see the training that they do, you know, it's intense. They will do hours and hours worth of training just to perfect that six, eight or now, you know, to less than two seconds. Um, so it was interesting for people to see all of all of that side of it. Um, and yeah, to, for me, it was just, as I say, great to be back with my boys, as it were, um, and and they enjoyed the process as well, having having the cameras around them and and having people to get a bit more of a look and a bit more understanding of what's a, a key part for them. But I think people just don't really understand the level of, of work and training that goes into to performing that what is a, a key role. If it goes wrong, that's that's a race potentially scuppered or certainly good results scuppered. And can I just sneak a quick extra one in? But with the, the, the really, you know, tragic, horrible loss of Sabine Smith recently, I just think there is just still, still so few women driving in any top class driving level. Why do you think that is? This is something I could talk at length about, but the short version basically is because I, I now uh, work with an organisation, was called Dare to be Different, it was started up by a lady called Susie Wolfe, who is a racing driver, was a racing driver, she's now retired, um, and it's now been taken on by the FIA, which is the governing body of the sport, who have acknowledged that, you know, something needs to be done to, to encourage more women to get involved, and it really starts at the, level, at, the, at the grassroots level, so if you imagine... It's a pillar. There are thousands and hundreds of thousands of people who start karting, which is the bottom level, and only very few of them will make it to the top. There are so few girls that start out that obviously there's, there's less, you know, less girls are, are, are likely to get to the top. So, so twofold, I think it's about educating people that, um, you know, if I talk to, I also um, run my own media training company, work a lot with young drivers. And if you ask so many of them, how did you get involved? they will say oh it was a friend's 10th birthday party and we went karting and how many people think to take their 10 year old you know daughter karting uh, there is still this perception that motorsport is a boy thing so people are reluctant to to take their, their daughters along it's a gender neutral it's one of the few gender gender neutral sports really i think sailing equestrian and, and motorsport are 
really sort of the three top sports where women and men can compete against each other on the same level. So it's about encouraging more people in at grassroots level. And also I think having icons, people that they can look up to. So people like Sabine, having that visibility, I think is really important. The, the, the UK camp championship, I cover the British Touring Car Championship. It's, it's 14 years since we had a, a woman competing a full season in that we've actually got that back again this year with a with a, a lady great driver called jade edwards who's also a great character as well and i think having that visibility little girls watching it on the television won't just look at all these boys and think oh that's not something girls do they'll see there's a woman doing it and think oh okay maybe maybe i can do that after all daddy can or mummy would you would you take me karting i'd quite like to do that so i think that visibility is is really really important Thank you. Thanks, Danny, and thanks, Louise, for a great answer. Um, we have now another first woman, Dr. Sarah Buck, would uh, like to ask a question. Sarah, are you there to pop up? I am. Great. Thank Hello. you. Lovely to see you. <laughs> um, another great evening, Anita. Um, and my question is for Rebecca, and you've touched on it a little bit, Rebecca, in that you um, have climbed Everest and that was your first one I can't believe that was your first one that just seems amazing um, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the other mountains you climbed because it obviously started something for you um, that meant you went on um, and what sort of training did you do and have you ever suffered from altitude sickness? I love these multiple questions. I, I can't hold them all in my head at the same time. Uh, just to qualify, I, I was introduced to mountaineering on Everest, that is true, um, but it, I didn't climb it to the top, so it wasn't the first ascent to the summit, if, if you like. I went back to it afterwards. Um, but um, and just to throw in there, I think in parentheses, but it, it felt to me, I often feel like this, that that although I hadn't been introduced to mountaineering at a younger age, I felt like I was coming home when I found mountaineering, um, because I think there was a combination of, you know, the outdoors, the, the landscape in particular was very important to me. And actually, as a child, I grew up in Kent, but holidays were on Dartmoor or in the Yorkshire Dales. I mean, maybe not as high as the Himalayas, but, you know, there's the rock and the landscape and the water. I loved all that sort of stuff. Um, so, um, Everest was uh, a few mountains down, down the road. Um, so uh, when I came back from that first expedition as, an, as, a, as a journalist, um, I started climbing. I was living in London, so first of all, it was on, on, on climbing walls. And by doing that, I met other like-minded people who enjoyed climbing. And then I would find myself traveling on the train every weekend to North Wales and, and slowly met people who wanted to do the same thing as I did and, and, and became part of a team where we were training together. I mean, that was the best thing. So we climbed in Scotland, we climbed uh, Mount Denali in North America. Um, that was as, as a training expedition for Everest. Um, and I climbed Kilimanjaro, the highest in Africa, um, with a girlfriend of mine. Actually, she, she rang me up and she was going on holiday um, to Africa for three weeks. And she knew I had worked there as a student. And she rang me up to ask what she might do there. And by the end of the phone call, I'd sort of gate crashed her holiday <laughs> and we went together um, to climb Kilimanjaro, which is something I'd always wanted to do. So, so of the seven, Kili was first, Denali in North America was second. And it was on the plane back from Alaska that we were booked to climb Everest the next year. And I thought, oh, and somebody started talking about this concept of the seven summits, which 
was really new to me. I mean, at that time, it wasn't spoken about. Um, but I thought I'd done two of these. And, you know, if I get up Everest, I would have done three. Um, so, you know, maybe I should carry on, you know, traveling the world, doing something that I love. And um, I gave up my job in order to climb Everest. So I had a lot of time on my hands and I decided that was what I was going to do. So that followed on from Everest. So I hope I've answered a bit of the question. Another part was about, have I ever had uh, mountain sickness, um, high altitude sickness? And the answer is yes. <laughs> um, maybe somebody who hasn't, who, who's been to high altitude. Um, having said that, I was reasonably lucky. I mean, it is like luck. You have blue eyes or brown eyes. Some people are better at altitude than others. And um, I, I mean, we had a couple of guys on our trip who were fantastic athletes, but simply couldn't perform at altitude. Um, I was lucky that, that I could, but, you know, I was sick. I mean, I was physically sick. You know, I, I know what it feels like. And, and on Aconcagua in South America, the only photograph I have of me on the summit is actually heaving. <laughs> Very, very sick. So yes, is the answer to that. Um, and I think there were three parts to your question. What, what was the third one? Can you remind me? No, I think it was really about the training and how you... Oh, the training. Yes. Yeah. yes, yes, yes. Well, well, the training was really in the doing. You know, I, I was working um, up until the day before we flew to Kathmandu, literally. Um, but at that stage, my life, every weekend I was climbing. Um, and um, I didn't do as much work as I might have done during the week when I was still working because I don't know if anybody's been on expeditions, but it was just jam packed up to the last minute in terms of tidying the desk, renting my flat, sorting the kit, and you know I felt like half you know half of it had already been achieved, just collapsing on the plane, <laughs> flying out to Kathmandu. But then of course when you're you know then there's a long walk. Um, I mean, anybody, I don't know, it's a wonderful, wonderful walk to do. Many people fly into Lukla, which is already at about 9,000 feet. We didn't do that. We, we took a truck and went as far as the roadhead, which was only at about three or 4,000 feet, and we walked from there. So we added another walk, a week or so of walking. So by the time we got to the base camp, we were really well acclimatized because we took our time. And um, going up and down hills, and we climbed another little peak, island peak, on the way in. And so we were pretty fit when we got to the mountain. That's yeah, probably really good preparation, I should think. It's all up front. It it, it really is. If you rush that first stage of the journey, mm. you can be in trouble. And actually, when I went that first time back in 1989, um, we were held up in Kathmandu for over a week. So we drove up to uh, the Chinese border, the Tibetan border, and we were met there by a liaison officer who had been hanging around waiting for us and wasn't very happy about that. So he rushed us to the base camp and actually a couple of people fell sick and got pulmonary edema and never really recovered from that, you know, um, in that time to be able to climb. You know that as a doctor, I'm sure. Uh, no, I'm not a medical doctor, but I do do trekking. So, okay, and I do suffer from altitude sickness. So, but at much lower altitudes than you, but it is about yes. the preparation. It is time. I mean, I think you know, give up. You know, our bodies time, and, mm. and we can we can do it. And um, it, it just you know, it takes some a bit longer than others, but that's cool because you just sit around and drink tea longer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, thank you that's great that's also answered um sean and avril asked that question so that's great we've had that 
altitude sickness um, discussion. Um, <laughs> now we have another first woman, uh, Jill Pay, would like to ask some uh, question. I think with um, to Louise. Jill, are you available to ask your question? Yes, I'm here. Thank you. Um, it's lovely to see everybody, and I reiterate what people said to Anita and Deborah that these are very special occasions. So, thank you for all sorts of training, and you, you achieved it. But um, what has that inspired you to take on in terms of other new challenges? I'm really sorry, Jill. I missed the beginning of the question. You you kind of went a bit reverbing. Oh, okay. I'll again. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was a fantastic challenge you took on here, and you trained hard. Jill, if you just turn your video off for a second, I think yeah, it was great. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Do you want me to ask it again? Yes, please. Yes. yes. I'm lucky. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll try again. Um, yeah, this was a fantastic challenge that you took on and you achieved it and did lots of training. I'm interested to know what that experience has inspired you to take on as different challenges after that. Hmm, good question, Jill. Um, I, there's nothing particular sounds a terrible thing to say but there's nothing particular that that's that springs to to mind that I could say it's inspired me to take on as a challenge I think it's um it was a it was another um I'm a great believer in having the courage of your convictions I think that's a really important thing so I think it did sort of reinforce that for me that um, you know don't don't have limitations just because nobody's ever done it before it doesn't mean that you can't do it so um, and and you know try try new things as well because I'm one of these people who I know a lot of, I, I kind of I don't I, I don't have aims and ambitions particularly I always describe it as going through life without having blinkers on which means I'm kind of open to all sorts of different opportunities so. Um, you know, when it comes to travel, which I love, there's so much more of that I want to do. And I think having having had the confidence of, of doing certain things that enables you to to then just think, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. I can do that, too. I can do that, too. So I think that's really been that the key learning from it, um, as I say, rather than it sort of making me think, oh, I want to do this next. It's just reinforced that feeling of you can do anything you want next. Let's just wait and see what comes along and, and, and what it's going to be. Well, that's a great role model example. Do you talk to groups of younger women, you know, younger than us, younger than me, young women, <laughs> you know, school colleges about that experience and what that's done for your confidence? It's sort of, it's about exploding the imposter syndrome that I'm getting at. Yeah, I, I do talk. There's, I mentioned the group earlier on that I'm involved with, which is about encouraging girls into motorsport. And it, it's it's something mm. I've done a, a sort of an about face on, because when I was, um, you know, in my early days in the sport, as I mentioned, that there weren't that many women around. And when I started working for ITV, our series director noticed one of the very few girls who was actually working as a technician, she was a data engineer in one of the garages. And he said, oh my goodness, we've got to do something about that. And and I said, no, don't, no, no, don't, don't make her stand out. She just wants to fit in, which was what I wanted in my early days in the sport. Mm -hmm. 
I wanted to be one of the boys for want of a better expression. I didn't want to stand out. I wanted to prove that I was just one of the lads. I could do anything that they would do. I didn't need anybody to carry my suitcase. I didn't need anybody to you know, do anything for me. I could very much do that myself. It's only in the later years that I've met so many people who've said to me, oh my God, I couldn't believe it when I saw you on the television talking about motorsport. I thought, wow, I could, I could do that too. So it's been a real role reversal in, in my mind for me. And that's made me realize the importance of, as, as we touched on earlier, about having those role models. Um, you know, mm. showing people that, you know, this is something that they that they can do. And so I do um, spend a reasonable amount of time now working with through schools. Um, we uh, will we'll get girls to come along to a circuit, give them little challenges. So I will run the presenter challenge. We have a camera there. I talk to them about, you know, how a journalist asks questions and that kind of thing. We'll have somebody who will have them doing little technical challenges sort of to touch on the sort of STEM side of things. So building a hovercraft or something like that. We'll have medics there showing them all the different roles that, that there are in motorsport. Um, so because I, yeah, I think it's really important to, mm. to encourage people and, and inspire people as well. And I think the other thing where motorsport specifically is concerned, it's not just about inspiring the youngsters, it's about educating the parents and their teachers that, no, this isn't a man's world. This is a world where there are a lot of opportunities for women in a lot of different roles. I think people turn on the television and they see, you know, principally men um, in those garages and think, well, that's just what, what boys do, which, you know, it, in numbers wise, yes, there are more of them, um, but there's absolutely no reason why that should be the case. It's, you know, it's not a physical sport. Interestingly, one of the girls who works for the touring car team, one of the touring car teams as a mechanic, one of her first jobs, they made her, they said, well, you can't do this. It was on the rally team. We need somebody who's got strength. They made her physically pick up a gearbox, which is a damn heavy bit of equipment. They said, you can't come on the team unless you can prove to us that you can pick up that gearbox. So she, in typical girl style, worked out a different way rather than just deadlifting a gearbox. She worked out a different way of getting it up to the level that they required. So I think you've taken on lots of other people's challenges, which is such a brilliant thing to do. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much. Thank you. That's great, uh, Jill. That's wonderful. We have one other first uh, woman on the call, J Judith Webb. But um, I don't know if Judith, have you got a question at all? As we've had all the other first talking. Judith, no? Okay. Um, so we have a question from um, Clive, uh, Clive Bowman. Would you like to ask your question, please? Is Clive there still? It's trying to, um, ah, can you hear me now? Yes. Can yes. I come back? Yes, Judith, yes, you can, yes, yes. <laughs> My internet is so dodgy, I, that's why I, I haven't dared ask a question. Oh, but, okay. uh, what, I, what, I, what I found really, really interesting is that Neither of neither neither of you have spoken really about. A, I mean, I feel there's been a huge change about male attitudes towards women, and you know, have either of you really experienced prejudice and misogyny? Uh, I mean, you know, I was a, a, an army officer, and I certainly did in the early days. You know, as the first woman to do things, you know, it's a constant thing. Oh, well, you can't do that. You're a woman. I mean, even taking a language, you know, and I just 
you know, you're that much younger, and I'm just interested to know whether or not that is something that either of you really experienced in what you were doing in, in very male-oriented um, achievements. Mm -hmm. Do you want to go first, Louise? Or I can go, I don't mind. Go, Rebecca. You okay. go. <laughs> <laughs> can I just say that listening to you, Louise, I do feel that you and I have an awful lot in common in some ways. <laughs> I'm thinking the same thing. We need yeah. to meet for a drink and share these stories more. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, have I experienced misogyny? Well, it was interesting because I was the only woman on the expedition on, on Everest. Um, and uh, so there were nine male climbers and the Sherpas were all male as well. And, and uh, I did a little bit. I mean, not, not hugely. And I think it came down you know, to individuals like all of us. But I was at a cusp of change back in the early 90s where there were some guys who had only ever been on expeditions with men. And there was a sort of conversation that somehow a woman was going to ruin it all. You know, she was bound to fall in love with one of the climbers and mess up the, you know, the, the dynamics. So seriously, I'm talking about that, that, that there was a bit of that. Um, mostly not, but but just just a little bit. And then there were a couple of sort of real red rags to the bull. I remember one guy saying to me, I don't know why you're going to bother going up to the South Pole because clearly you won't get any higher. Well, I mean, can you say something that's going to make you more determined, you know? Um, so I just, you know, swept that one away and um, went up there and, um, yeah, that, that was fine. Uh, so I think I was aware of it. I think I was aware of that period in history uh, where things were changing and, and I think hopefully moved on since then. Uh, although... In some ways, I have to say they haven't. And I'm not just talking about misogyny here. I think one of the, the things that my um, education gave me, and I had some criticism for my school, but basically I was at a girls' grammar school and we had an amazing headmistress. Um, I didn't think of it at the time, but I came out of that school without any sense that there wasn't anything I could do if I wanted to do it. I, it just didn't occur to me that I was disadvantaged uh, in any way being a woman to climb Everest, I mean, why would it occur to me? You know, it, it just didn't, because that, that wasn't something that was even spoken about. Um, and mm. actually, she was right, because there is no disadvantage being a woman climbing a high mountain. Um, I would argue that there might be a slight advantage, because certainly watching women at high altitude, I think they're very well suited to it. Now, I have no scientific evidence to back that, by the way, so I don't want to go reporting that wildly, but you know, generally speaking, when I've climbed with women, they've, they've been quite good at altitude. Um, now I have two girls myself, one aged 18 and one 14. And there have been a couple of things that they have experienced, which seem almost a retrogressive step from when I was growing up. I mean, it may just be different environments or something like that, um, you know, uh, uh, maybe an increased sensitivity. I mean, my eldest daughter is quite sensitive about these things, but she got very upset not being able to play football, for example, at her primary school. And I had a headmistress saying, well, it's not because she's a girl. And I kind of go, oh, well, that's interesting. Why is it? <laughs> you know, all the boys are playing football and the girls playing netball. Um, and so there's more conversation about it now than I ever had at that age. Um, but maybe it is just something that is out there in the conversation. I don't know. Um, but, you know, in brief to answer your question, yes, sometimes I did, um, but you know what, 
I've got the skin of a rhino. I just, yeah, I couldn't be bothered. <laughs> really, really. I think it, make, it makes you more determined, doesn't it? <laughs> Definitely. Um, that's great. Thanks, Judith. Uh, we've got a question from Clive I, that he wants me to ask. So this one is directed at Louise. Um, how did you get into sport reporting, uh, Louise? And do you just do motorsport or do you do other sports as well? And if so, do you have a favourite sport? Um, I, the short answer is I kind of fell into it, if the truth be known. Um, I, I left school um, or college having done my A-levels, didn't have a clue what I wanted to do, um, went travelling for a while. And whilst I was travelling, met the editor of a powerboat racing magazine. Um, and I kind of helped her out. She was over in America doing a stateside issue and I helped her out a bit. And I kind of thought, oh, journalism, why nobody? You know, history, English were my strongest um, A-level subjects. Why nobody ever suggested journalism to me? I don't know, but they didn't. Um, so that was really what sparked my idea with journalism. So I, when I came back to the UK, I started working for, for the magazine through powerboat racing, met people who were involved in motorsports. So that was how I, how I got into motorsports. So, um, so no, that is, it's been pretty much my entire working life has, has been in motorsport. So I know nothing about, well, I care less than nothing about football, you know, <laughs> rugby I enjoy as a sport, but, um, you know, I, I always say to people, I, I, you know, I look at other women, um, there's a lady called uh, Lee McKenzie, who, for example, talking about rugby, she does a lot of reporting on, on rugby. Now, Lee is a, is a career um, broadcaster who has done some work in, in motorsport. I would describe myself as a career motorsport person, really, who's, who's ended up working in, in broadcasting. So I think I'm sort of slightly the other way around. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I think I don't know enough about other sports. I think for me, that's a, that's a key thing, just sort of reflecting back to the last question about misogyny. I, I think you, if you know your stuff, that for me is a, is a key thing. At being taken seriously in in what you're doing. Funnily enough, one of the only people who I had misogynistic comments from was my my much loved and and now sadly departed colleague Murray Walker, who I got on incredibly well with. But Murray at the British Grand Prix one year, he'd, he'd done a big double page spread in the in the I think it was the Mail on Sunday they'd done a feature on him, and I was reading it, and and he'd in classic Murray style, being from a different generation had said they'd asked him about women in motorsport he said oh it's not it's not really not really a place for women it's a, you know it's a man's sport and so I, I I showed up Murray this um this article yes yes dear article in the mail on Sunday yeah they phoned me up I said but this bit you said here Murray about motorsports not for women he said well you know what I mean dear I mean it's not really you know it's it's, it's a boy I said Murray I'm a woman <laughs> I didn't mean you, dear. I didn't mean you at all. <laughs> oh, brilliant, brilliant. We have one more question from Miriam, who is in the audience. Uh, Miriam, are you able to ask the question and pop up? Are you there? I know it's getting a bit close to the end of the call. Ah, oh, Miriam, there you are. Can you unmute yourself? Yes. There we go. It's, um, it was for Rebecca. Um, um, I'm an Alpine Club member, um, and I've met some really inspirational women. Uh, I wondered if she'd ever met Alison Hargreaves, oh. uh, who I met at um, Mountain Literature Festival. Yes, sorry, do you know, I felt And I uh, if she had any comments about people yeah. she met. Oh, thank you for that. I, I seriously felt my whole body tingle when you said that. Um, 
the short answer is no, but I, I came very clear. <laughs> what happened was the year she climbed K2 was 1995. And I, I hadn't met her at that point. Uh, but 1995 was also the 20th anniversary of the first ascent of Everest by Junker Dubai. And Junker Dubai um, celebrated the 20th anniversary by inviting women from all over the world who had climbed Everest to spend a week with her in Tokyo and climbing Fuji. And I was going to be doing this, fantastic. Um, so I was going to be going and, um, and then uh, Alison Hargreaves climbed Everest in superb style, you know, solo, without oxygen. And I had a phone call from Junker Dubai saying, could you please extend the invitation to Alison? So I rang Alison, got her number from the Alpine Club probably, um, and um, left a message on her answer phone. And then she rang me and left a message on my answer phone. And of course she couldn't go because that year she planned to climb Everest and K2 and Kanchenjunga in one season. So when we went to Japan, she was going off to climb K2. Um, and for those who don't know the story, very sadly, Alison died on K2. And actually it, was, it must have been just before I went to um, Japan because I was clearly traveling a lot of the time, but I remember distinctly, I was in South Africa, sitting at a bar, watching the television and it was in Afrikaans, but I saw her picture and I knew exactly from the tone of the delivery what had happened, that she died on K2. So I never met her. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Terribly yeah. sad story, terribly sad story. Yes. Well, yeah, thank you for asking that, Miriam. And I think it's your first call, isn't it, with us? Yes, it is, yes. Oh, thank, you. thank you very much. Wonderful. Well, I can't believe it, but we have finished the time that we have. But there are a couple of questions that have come in. One from Deborah to the um, guests and one from Tony to me. So if anybody just wants to stay on for a few minutes, maybe Deborah could ask you, would you like to ask your question to the guests? I always feel a bit cheeky asking the question because I'm, I'm, I'm staff. <laughs> we'll ask it anyway. Um, to both of you, if you could choose one of the other hundred firsts to have a, have had experienced other than your own, which one would you pick? Oh, gosh, that's really putting us on the spot, isn't it? <laughs> Do you want me to jump in and give you some thinking time? <laughs> My first would be, and this is terrible because I can't remember her name. Um, but she was the first woman to ride a motorcycle solo around the world. Um, uh, Elspeth Beard. Elspeth Beard. Elspeth, that's right, Elspeth. Um, and, and as a woman who loves riding motorbikes and loves traveling and, and has read other books about, you know, people doing journeys around Africa and that would just bring all of my, all of my loves together. So that, that would be mine. Have you read her book? No, I haven't. Oh, Lone Rider. Yeah, it's a good, good one. And Rebecca, what's that your... down now? Lone well, Rider. Okay, I, I'm going to cheat a little bit here, but Louise, you've just inspired me to come up with an answer. And this is a, a woman who I have read about and who I just think had the most amazing life and the sort of life I would have loved to have led. 
Um, and she's not in your book, Anita. Oh, okay. She died. She's, she, she died. Well, she's on an age. She, you know, she should be dead, frankly. Uh, but I, I'm going to just tell you a little bit because when I, I hinted the fact that I worked in Africa as a student, and I was there working on a farm, and the farmer had bought horses from this woman or got her horses when she died. She bred horses. She grew up as a wild child in Africa. Her parents went over there. Her mother absolutely couldn't stand it, came straight home to, to London. And so her father sort of was there. She grew up with him, but, but as a young white girl in Africa, she ran wild with the Maasai and learned to hunt and learnt all those things. And, um, and she was the first, not woman, any man or woman to fly from England across the Atlantic to America, from, um, from east to west. Her name, Beryl Markham. Beryl, Beryl Markham. Beryl Markham, West with the Night is her book. And um, there's a photo in the middle of it of the farm where we stayed um, in, in Kenya. So I had this sort of emotional thing, but what a life, you know, just wild and free and exciting. And um, yeah, I would have loved that. <laughs> Right, we'll have to try and get her somehow. <laughs> um, yeah, well, we have come to the end of time, but Tony uh, Pritchard has, has asked a question to me, um, which uh, he would like Deborah to ask me, I think. Is that correct? Uh, anyway. No, I don't think so. No? Okay, so Tony Pritchard, uh, obviously he's a, um, one of our, um, our men on the call, which is great, and he's in graphics. And he asked me, um, uh, you know, saying that it was a fantastic series, but how could we get more men and younger women to come onto the Zoom calls? Um, and um, any thoughts on why we might be missing this demographic? Well, obviously it would be wonderful to have all kinds of different people on the call and, and we welcome uh, new people, new parts of the, the club, if you like. So I think the best thing to do is for all of you to go out there and spread the word Say that you've had a fantastic time and um, next month we'll hopefully have double the amount of people. I mean that, that you know there's absolutely no, um, we'd love to have everybody on the call and the questions coming in are, are always interesting whoever asks them. So thank you Tony for that one and uh, yeah we'll get our thinking caps on. Maybe we need some graphic design, that probably would help, a branding session. Um, <laughs> some more, yeah some more media, some more some more advertising, I, I guess, would be good. But I'd just, just love to say now, thank you so much for staying on the call even, even beyond the, 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 the 7.30. And I hope that everybody's had a lovely time. Um, we look forward to seeing you next month, um, which will be on the 18th of May. I think we're, we've decided the 18th of May. But first of all, um, most of all, sorry, um, very many special thanks to our lovely guests, Louise Goodman, and Rebecca Stevens, clap, 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 clap. Yes, virtual applause. Uh, thank you, thank you for coming on the call. And all of you, I uh, hope you have a really good rest of the April. Lovely, lovely weather out there. Um, uh, yeah, thanks so much, uh, Louise and Rebecca. If you'd like to let us know about any books that you've written, please pop them up on the chat, or we'll we'll put them out, add them on the the next newsletter that we send out. And um, Great to see all of you here and especially obviously the, the five or six first women that came along and asked some fantastic questions. So 
have a great night and see you next month. Thank you, Anita. Thank you so much. Thanks for meeting you, Anita. Lovely to lovely to see everyone. Namaste. Thank, thank you, Louise. Lovely to meet you. Oh, well, London. <laughs> Hopefully, you'll get together again. Get together. Yeah, that would be nice. <laughs> Got to cook supper now, though. <laughs> oh. Yeah, for your girls. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Bye, bye, everybody. Bye, bye. Bye, bye. bye, -bye. <laughs>